Welcome to Basketball Buzz, the show that combines three great things, Kentucky basketball, college basketball, and bourbon. I'm one of your three hosts, Arizona Terry. With me are Shane Michael. Tonight, we're going to talk hoops, but we'll also have a special guest on and a, a great episode. Joining us on the show once again is Jacob Kuyper, bourbon steward and historian. So Jacob will cover a lot of bourbon information tonight. He's going to kind of help us understand some of the terminology that we see in the bourbon world. So Jacob... Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on tonight. Appreciate it. Yeah, it was awesome last time, and I'm sure we're going to have a great show tonight. So let's kind of just dive in. So, Jacob, last time we had you on the show, you, you did a Bourbon for Beginners segment, and that actually was really well received. I think it was probably our top show we've done here at Basketball Buzz. And we were hoping you could take that a little bit further and educate our audience on bourbon and kind of help us understand, understand things like mash bill and proof and cast strength and you know you, you get the picture all these crazy terms and uh you know just kind of walk us through those terms and help people understand the the world of bourbon a little bit better sound good okay. yeah sure well you brought up some of the terminology and if you're new to bur the bourbon world um you may encounter a lot of uh, phrases and terms and you're not really sure what those mean and you may not feel completely comfortable asking somebody what it all means. So one of the things you tossed out was mash bill. Uh, in simplest terms, mash bill is simply the grain recipe that your whiskey uses. In America, um, well, in general, whiskey has to be 100% grain. That can be any type of grain. Um, Scotch whiskey, it's often 100% malted barley. And when we talk about bourbon, it has to be grain, but at least 51% of the grain recipe must be corn. Now, oddly, there are not many bourbons that use 51% corn. Um, most of the bourbons that, that are on the shelf are in the 70% range. Some of them are in the 60% range, but almost none of them are actually 51 or, or even in the 50% range. Um, a lot of them you're looking at about 75% corn, 15% um, rye, and 10% malt barley. So as long as 51% of that grain recipe is corn, the other grains, it doesn't matter what they are, and it can still be bourbon. Um, traditionally, those, the other grains are rye and malt barley, or such as Maker's Mark, wheat. Then you do have a few fun distilleries out there that experiment with other grains like quinoa and spelt and triticale. And, um, but as long as 51% of that grain recipe is corn, you can legally call it bourbon. Okay. All right. So I, I don't really like to, to eat the quinoa, but are you saying I could drink the quinoa? Because that may be more acceptable. Well, I'll say based on the two expressions I've tried, I don't know that you want to drink it It's It's legally bourbon. Um, nobody said that it was good bourbon. But yes, <laughs> you, can, you can legally make bourbon with quinoa in the mash bill. Just no guarantees on how good it tastes. Yeah, Jacob, I don't want no hippie bourbon, so just throw that crap out. <laughs> well, one one notable distiller that does it is uh, Corsair Distilling in Nashville. Um, their whole thing is that they don't want to do anything that anyone else is doing. If anyone else has done anything close to it, they're out. Um, but again, there's often a reason that no one else has done a lot of the things that they're doing because while it's 
innovative, it's not necessarily great. <laughs> I love how Jacob does that. It's innovative, but it's so not PC. exactly very good. <laughs> awesome. So, so Jacob, I, I understand. Um, I, I guess maybe I don't understand. Why would some companies publish their mash bill and other companies not? Because um, well, th th there's a website that I go to because I'm actually interested in that and I want the higher corn content. Mm -hmm. But um, sometimes there's there's just nothing that's there. Is it because the company is trying to protect its recipe? Well, historically, yes. They 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 claim that the mash bill it's proprietary information, and I guess they're afraid that if they have a popular product, someone else can go out there and create that same mash bill and compete with them. Um, but there's much more to creating a unique product. Um, you could have 10 different distilleries that all use the exact same mash bill, but if they're producing on different stills, different yeast, different barrel chars, different warehouses, you're going to get completely different products. Um, for, for example, um, Green River Distilling, when they initially launched as OZ Tyler, let's forget that though, um, they were sourcing MGP. When they started distilling their own whiskey, they kept the MGP mash bill. So Green River's flagship bourbon shares a mash bill with one of MGP's common bourbons. Same mash bill, yet they taste nothing alike because they use different yeast strains and they have different stills, different climates, different rickhouses. Same mash bill, but completely different bourbons in the end. Um, some distilleries, though, like transparency. Uh, I'm a big fan of transparency, and that's kind of the hot thing right now is we want to know everything that we can about the whiskey that we're drinking. So some distilleries like being perfectly open about it. That draws me to them. And some like being a little more secretive with their proprietary information. And that's just that's just a personal choice for them. That makes sense. Great. So, so let's see. Some other, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go, no, go, go ahead, Jake. All right. So let's see. Some other, other terms we talked about was proof. Um, you will notice that proof is largely an American term. If you, if you get bottles of rum and whiskey from other parts of the world, you're only going to see usually alcohol by volume. Whereas American whiskey, you're going to see both alcohol by volume and proof. Um, and what proof simply is, is you take the alcohol by volume and you double it. So if you see a bottle that says 80 proof on it, that means that it is 40% alcohol. Um, so 60% of that bottle is water. So where that, where that term comes from, um, it goes back quite a long way. And back before we had hydrometers and fancy equipment to actually measure the strength of our alcohol, one of the ways they would prove that would be they would take a small amount of gunpowder and they would pour some of the whiskey on it and they would try to light a flame to it. Um, wow. If the alcohol was below 100 proof, well, back up, 100 proof was the target. Um, for the longest time, 100 proof was kind of the industry standard. So if you take sub 100 proof alcohol and you pour it over alcohol, over gunpowder, and you try to light it, it's not going to light. If you pour 100 proof alcohol on gunpowder and light it, you're going to get a nice, slow, steady burn. But if you pour a higher proof alcohol on the gunpowder, you're going to get a nice flash. So that was, a, that was a way they would determine the relative strength of alcohol back before 
we had equipment to actually measure that. It was the gunpowder test. So would say that if you have that nice slow burn, it was proof that your alcohol was of good quality. That is amazing. I bet you Shay will test that this weekend. I almost guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, that definitely sounds like something that was done after consuming some of the alcohol. <laughs> That's the proof, man. That's the proof. Well, of course, uh, today, you know, we have actual equipment called a hydrometer that can give us a very specific measure. And of course, obviously mixing booze with gunpowder was not an exact science, but, <laughs> but it, was, it was close enough <laughs> those days to tell you, was your alcohol strong enough or was it too weak? You know, Michael's nickname is Hydrometer. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, I, this may be the point in the podcast where we say, kids, don't try this at home. <laughs> I've died. So, and what's with, with, the, with the term cask strength? Um, cask strength is kind of all the rage now. Starting in the 1970s, um, that, that 100 proof standard started going down in America. The standard started going down to 90, to 86, down to 80 proof. Now, over the last several years, we're looking at cask strength again. And many American consumers consider that 86, 80 proof stuff to be pretty boring. And now it's all about how, how high of a proof can you get. So what cask strength means is that um, the whiskey is bottled at the exact proof that it comes out of the barrel. Um, many of the bourbons or any spirit that we drink Water is often added to it. Usually, water is added to it coming out of the barrel to get it to a bottling strength. So look, let's look at Woodford Reserve. Um, almost all of their expressions are bottled at 90.4 proof. Um, Woodford Reserve does not come out of the barrel at 90.4 proof. Um, and to have all those bottles, you know, they add water to it to get it down to that proof. Um, you know, most most bourbons on the market, that is the case. They add water to it to get it down to that point. Um, those bourbons are going to come out of the barrel somewhere 115 proof, 120 proof, somewhere in that area, um, depending on brand. And they're going to add water to it to come down to that. So when you see cask strength or barrel strength or barrel proof, those all mean the same thing. It means that when they, when they dump the barrel and it goes into the bottle, exactly as it came out of the barrel now there's a little bit of trickery though that there's some deception possibly some brands will actually if they want to lower the proof they will add water to the whiskey while it's still in the barrel but as long as they dump it out of the barrel and the proof is what it is they can legally call it cask strength so if it's sitting in that barrel at 122 proof and they add enough water to drop to 105 proof in the barrel Water was added in the barrel, but they can still legally call it cask strength, barrel proof, um, and, it, and it's legally binding. Sneaky, but effective. Yeah, it is. Um, so and some, some brands feel like that if you want to lower the proof of your whiskey, that it produces a better whiskey to add water in the barrel slowly versus adding water in a tank after you dump the barrels. I can see that. But if you see cask strength, you're all, that almost always means that it's going to be rather high proof. Gotcha. Great. So, Jacob, I have a I have a question. So, you know, we all love our our Kentucky bourbon. I, I brought up something similar last time. How we some people feel that it's not really bourbon if it's not from Kentucky. 
Um, but the reality is there are distillers all across the country now producing bourbon. Are there any terms that are specific to a certain region, a certain state that's producing it um, that you'll see in some areas that you won't see in others? Well, let's see here. One, um, just to call something Kentucky bourbon, it has to be distilled in Kentucky and it has to be aged in Kentucky for at least one year and one day. The one year and one day thing is so that Kentucky gets their tax money on it. It means that it aged long enough in Kentucky that the Kentucky government can, can claim tax money on it because Kentucky charges the tax for aging in our state. Um, there are some other regional things. Um, New York State right now has a classification called Empire Rye. Um, back before Prohibition, the Northeast part of the country, rye was king. And in fact, Northeastern rye was possibly more popular than Kentucky bourbon heading into Prohibition. So New York State, Pennsylvania, Maryland, those were all rye capitals. Um, so now they, the New York legislature has brought back Empire Rye. And there are some certain classifications on it. One of the big things is that at least 80% of the grain in an Empire Rye has to be New York grain. So in Kentucky, we don't put that kind of stipulation. In fact, um, now a lot of the corn in Kentucky bourbon does come from Kentucky. But the majority of the rye and the malt barley doesn't. But for Empire Rye, they mandate that at least 80% of the grain was grown in New York. Hmm. You are seeing other states that are starting to put some specifications. Um, the Indiana legislature recently uh, enacted Indiana Rye. Um, of course, they, they did that because MGP makes the big push on, 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 on rye. But there are other brands, other smaller distilleries that are starting to talk about Indiana rye. And it's largely the same classification for Kentucky bourbon. It's just, it's rye in Indiana. And we're going, we're going to see other states that are starting to do similar things. Missouri recently enacted a Missouri bourbon. Uh, and they go so far as to say that the barrels that are used to age their bourbon have to be grown in Missouri. And that's not really a hard thing to do considering that um, Independent Stave uh, is based, in, or is they're, they're based in Missouri. Okay. So many of the barrels that Kentucky ages in, they came from Missouri wood. Okay. So that's, uh, that's a nice nod to Missouri, but it's not really a hard thing for them since most of our barrels come from Ozark wood. But I think over time, we're going to start seeing more states um, try to put a moniker on them. They have no federal meaning. Um, you know, Kentucky bourbon has no federal definition. Tennessee whiskey has no federal definition, but it has. But the state legislature determines that. It's like marketing, right? Yeah, it is. So, you know, and so in order to call Kentucky bourbon has, you know, has to be aged in Kentucky for a, a year and a day to be Tennessee whiskey, it has to be distilled in Tennessee, you know, you can make the exact same products in another state, but you couldn't call it Tennessee whiskey, even though all the manufacturing um, was exactly the same. You know, Missouri has done that, New York has done that, um, Indiana has done that, and I would imagine at some point other states are going to start following that same suit. With the, with the rebirth of Pennsylvania rye, I would imagine at some point, Pennsylvania will try to do the same thing with their rye whiskey. Well, good for them. Let's see, some of the other terms tossed out there. Um, angel share, uh, that's a term we may have heard, but not really sure what exactly it means. Um, angel share is simply 
evaporation lost through the barrel. Uh, while we, we think of, of wood staves in the barrel as being a solid substance, um, they are actually porous. Um, they're, it's a very tight pour, um, but over time, you're going to have a small amount of evaporation throughout the year, maybe 5% of the liquid per year that will evaporate through the pours in the barrel. So if you put 53 gallons of whiskey into a barrel, a couple of years from now, you're definitely not going to have 53 gallons of whiskey in that barrel. Now, what's kind of a fun thing about it, though, is that barrels that are stored in the upper part of the rickhouses, where it's hotter, um, what evaporates most is water. So barrels that are stored in the upper parts of the rickhouse, when they come out, the alcohol is likely going to be a higher proof than it went in. Whereas barrels that are stored at the bottom of the rickhouse, where it's cooler, what's going to evaporate is alcohol. So barrels that are stored at the bottom of the rickhouse, when, when, when it's done, the alcohol proof is going to go down over time. So Jacob, is it rickhouse or rackhouse? Okay, so um, the, the, the technical definition is that a rickhouse is a patented term. Um, the the Buzzick family construction, um, they own the patent to the current rickhouse designs. So if you want to get technical, if, a, if it was not built by Buzzick Family Construction, it's not technically a rickhouse. Does anybody care about that? No. Um, but technically, it's, it is not a rickhouse unless Buzzick Family Construction built it. And they have built most of the rickhouses in Kentucky for the last several decades. Um, but you can call it a rackhouse um, or you can just call it a warehouse. Um, now, the actual design for the ricking, like that we all use today, was um, was developed by um, Frederick Stitzel from this whole Stitzel Weller family that we all know of. Uh, I want to say, oh, 1837, maybe. I think that, wow. that year sounds right. Um, he actually developed that whole ricking system. That year is not right. I'm blanking on it. But no, he actually patented the RIC system that we use today, which allows for maximum airflow around the barrels, which helps for proper aging. Gotcha. One more question. Cask versus barrel. What's, okay. what's the difference? Um, it's just an American term versus a European term. Um, cask, cask and barrel, um, they're, both, they're, they're both applicable. Just in America, we tend to call them barrels. Um, if you go to Scotland, they're, they're, they're going to call them casks. Um, they are interchangeable terms. Now, there are terms for different types of barrels that are not interchangeable. Um, hogshead, puncheons, um, and those um, barriques, those are, those are barrels that are of, of different sizes, different lengths, different widths. They hold different, different amounts. Um, but it, generally, if you hear barrel or cast, they're interchangeable terms. It's just in America, we tend to call them barrels. Gotcha. Jacob, so, one, one more question for me. Um, separate and apart from the, the definitions, um, you know, when, when we go to a, a nice restaurant and we eat a steak or we eat a chicken and we're, uh, we're drinking wine, we have a pairing. Certain wines go best with certain types of food. Is that is there any truth to that on the bourbon side or is it really just up to the palate of the one who's consuming the bourbon? Well, it's a little of both. Um, one, you know, things that you taste in a whiskey, I may not taste. Um, and things that I taste, you don't taste. So there, there is a certain amount of subjectivity to this. Now, but we also 
do know is that each whiskey, it does contain certain levels of various compounds. So um, for instance, um, vanillin, most bourbon contains a good amount of vanillin um, or the common pronunciation vanillin. And that is the same compound that exists in vanilla beans. So the reason that, that we get vanilla notes in many bourbons is that because bourbon does contain some of the same exact same chemical that vanilla beans contain. So, you know, when you're cooking, um, certain spices are going to work together. You know, there are certain pairings that you would think to, to put together to produce Mexican food or Korean food or barbecue. Um, certain flavor compounds seem to work well together. Well, likewise with whiskey, um, there are certain compounds that are going to work well together. Um, you know, there's a reason that you talk about, you know, pairing white wines with fish and, and whatnot. Um, there are certain compounds and oils and uh, esters that exist in those foods that work well together and some that don't. Um, you know, a lot of spicy foods um, don't necessarily work well with bourbon, but they might work better with um, tequila, what's in tequila, which is why you oftentimes it works to do tequila with spicier Mexican foods. Um, me personally, I wouldn't want to eat tacos and combine bourbon. Beer. I don't, I don't think those flavors yeah. necessarily work. So yeah, part of it is subjective, but at the same time, there are actual chemicals that your compounds you can measure in your spirits and those compounds give it flavor. And some of those flavors mesh better with certain foods. And some of those flavor compounds don't mesh well with certain foods. Good to know. Thank you. So, so I got one more question for you, Jacob. I know we've, we've kept asking you questions. So mine's kind of bourbon related. So I see, uh, I've been watching a lot more uh, bourbon YouTube videos to kind of expand my knowledge about uh, how to taste and how to, to, to determine different flavor profiles. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the glassware that's used? I just see you just took a sip from but the glassware that's used that is conducive to getting the best uh, taste and, and understanding uh, the bourbon was well on the palate. So there are a plethora of glasses out on the market now. Um, some of them are very expensive. Some of them are pretty affordable. I think the glass that most of us probably start with, what we call a rocks glass, the short little squat glass, mm -hmm. which you put ice in. If you want to put yeah. ice or you want to make a cocktail, those are perfectly good glasses. Um, I don't put ice in my bourbon, so I don't have a need for a rocks glass. But also with the wide brim, it doesn't really concentrate any of the aromas. If you're wanting to nose your bourbon, if you're wanting to smell it, taking that aroma, a rocks glass isn't your best bet because that wide brim isn't concentrating anything. Um, the official glass of the Scotch Whiskey, of the Scotch Whiskey Association is the Glencairn glass. And it has largely become the most popular glass in the world, including for bourbon drinkers here in America, which is the glass that I'm drinking out of tonight. Um, it is a tulip-shaped glass um, where it's, it's fatter at the bottom and more narrow at the top. And I like that because in that narrow top, it concentrates the aromas. Um, you know, the, 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 aroma, the aroma compounds coming off, it concentrates it so you can smell it all in one place. It also works because it's a glass that's not going to tip over easily if you accidentally hit it, if you have to pedal too much. But as you hold it, your hand kind of warms the whiskey. And as you warm the whiskey up, it, it releases more flavor compounds, it releases more aroma. But also, I think the Glencairn is really popular because it's cheap. 
Um, you can order them on eBay. I think you get two of them for $13. Now there are other glasses called like the Norlin and the neat glass. And some of those you're looking at $50 for a single glass. Um, and, and on, honestly, the jury is out whether or not those glasses are actually any better than the cheaper Glencairn. So if you're, if you're interested in getting a, a, a deeper, slightly more serious appreciation, it's probably worth ordering some Glencairn glasses on eBay or Amazon um, or a kitchen store if you have one locally. You know, they're pretty affordable. The only knock is they're pretty delicate too. I've broken several of them. Um, they get broken <laughs> Jacob, that's true. And uh, luckily, I have a Twitter buddy, Carrie Skaggs, who sent me some of those glasses, and they are awesome, but they are very fragile. They are. So if you're looking for glassware, honestly, getting started, I wouldn't mess with the with the Norlin glass or the the, the neat glass because they're they're really expensive. The Glencairn glass is probably even a better glass, to be honest. It's the most popular glass, and they're much more affordable. Um, that that that's where I would start. Now, but if you want to put ice in your glass, that's fine. Go go with a, a rocks glass. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I I personally prefer the Glencairn glass, though. Yeah, I think if you have a lesser quality bourbon, sometimes you got to have a bigger glass to you know, help it out a little bit. Another term I want to I want to toss out there. Um, we you mentioned on the whole uh, Tennessee whiskey Jack Daniels thing earlier is the term sour mash. I think that's a term we've all heard. And one of the common retorts is that Jack Daniels is not a bourbon, it's a sour mash whiskey. I think it's important to realize that roughly 99% of all bourbons in America are sour mash. At least most bourbons you've ever tried are sour mash. And what that simply means is that um, after distilling, they save some of the leftover um, stillage, you know, the, the beer, and they add that to the next batch of beer slightly like making sourdough bread uh, whereas sweet mash they start with the fresh mash every single time they don't use any of the, of the previous batches mash um, honestly the, the the biggest brand that you know that uses sweet mash is kentucky peerless that hmm. that is the only brand that is probably on national shelves um, that uses sweet mash is is kentucky peerless so if someone says, you know, it's, it's not a bourbon, it's a Tennessee sour mash whiskey. Well, so is Jim Beam. So is Old Forester. So is every other big box bourbon that you know. Um, they're all sour mash as well. <laughs> you said big box bourbon. <laughs> I was like, that, that is so true, though, right? Now, a lot of these smaller, newer, independent craft distilleries, maybe they are doing yeah. sour mash. Um, but we're talking like the, the, the big boys. All the big boys are doing sour mash. So let's talk about aging. Okay. Like, what's your thoughts about aging? Like, to be a bourbon, you got to be aged at least four years, correct? Okay. Well, technically, that's the, all right. Technically, what the law says is that bourbon simply has to be aged in a new charred oak container. You can dump whiskey, unaged whiskey, into an oak bucket for five seconds, pour it out, and that's bourbon. Now, it's not bourbon anyone's going to buy. Um, now, we talk about straight bourbon. I might. Um, <laughs> that, that, sounds, that sounds like Jack Daniels, but I, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, ah. Now, there, there are some craft distilleries that will bottle their bourbon at a year, year and a half. Um, but to be straight bourbon, 
it has to be aged at least two years in a charred new oak container. Um, any any bourbon that is aged less than four years must can, must have an age statement on the label, meaning that if it is three years old, that label has to say aged three years. If it is aged two years, the label must say aged two years. Anything four years and older does not have to put an age statement on it. So if you see a bottle that says um, Kentucky Straight Bourbon, but you don't see an age statement on it, you know that, that bottle is at least four years old. Um, and in, in this day and age, age statements, though, tend to be disappearing. It wasn't that long ago that all these products had age statements on them. Um, Knob Creek took their nine-year age away for a while. They brought it back. Elijah Craig carried a 12-year age statement forever. Um, it's gone now. But um, so if, yeah, so some, some bottles, many bottles these days don't carry an age statement. But if you don't see an age on it, you know that it's at least four years old. So what's your thoughts about aging? Do you think the longer the age, the better the bourbon? In some cases, in some cases, no. Um, me personally, I don't like super aged bourbons. Um, I get that the whole Happy Van Winkle craze has made everyone think that 20 plus year bourbon is the way to go. Um, the oldest bourbon I've, I've ever tried that I liked was 17 years old. I've tried a couple of them that were at 20, 23, 24 years old, and I didn't like them. Um, it's not just a matter that I can't afford those bottles. It's if I had the money, I wouldn't buy those bottles. Um, at that point, they taste um, like you're chewing on a table leg. A couple of years ago, they, um, they bottled a um, Thompson's Final Reserve. It was distilled at Glenmore Distillery in Owensboro many years ago. It was a 45-year-old bourbon. Um, that was, The barrels were largely forgotten about. And by all accounts, it was terrible. Um, wow. when, you, when, you bought, when you bought the bottle for $1,600, they Ugh. gave you a full-size bottle, and they gave you a little tiny bottle to taste. But the box you bought it in came with a small bottle of sherry. Because the man, the, 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 the people who bottled it knew that it was so bad on its own that you had to add sherry to it to be able to drink it. Um, oh you know, God. 45 years, that's a long time for bourbon. You know, and there are reasons why scotch, you can drink at 45 years old. Um, they use they, they used, used barrels, and their climate is much different than what we age in. So scotch, you know, 45, 50 years old, you're still cooking. That's still good stuff. Um, nobody wants a bourbon 45 years old. It's terrible. It's, it's not meant, that's not meant for bourbon. For me personally, um, the 10 to 12 year age is my sweet spot. Um, they, you know, I, and there are a lot of things that I like that are eight years old. A lot of the starlight out of, out of Borden, Indiana is real popular right now. Um, most of their, their well-aged stuff's five years old and starlight makes really good bourbon at five years old. Green River right now, um, five years old. It's fantastic stuff. So you don't have to have double-digit ages to get quality bourbon. Let's talk about blended with okay. whiskey. What, what's your thoughts on that? All right. So blended um, historically in America is a dirty word. Now today it can mean something different. Historically, what blended whiskey meant in America was that up to 20% of the composition was straight whiskey, and up to 80% of it was, was grain neutral spirit, essentially vodka. It means that of that bottle, up, up to 20%, or at least 20% was straight bourbon, 
blended with vodka. Um, no one really wants to drink that today. That's what Four Roses was relegated to for decades before they brought it back in the early 2000s. Now today, though, when you see blended whiskey, um, that's not on the bottom shelf. It tends to mean more of your blending in a bourbon and a rye together, or you're blending different types of whiskey. So today in, in America, blended whiskey is not quite the dirty word that it was in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Um, it, it, it can mean blended types of whiskey. Now we can talking like Scotland, um, in the, you know, a good number of high quality scotches are blended whiskey. Johnny Walker, all of those are blended whiskey. Michael um, knows about that. He's had a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, so and I will continue to have a lot of it. So we're talking European blended whiskey. It's, it's not a dirty phrase. But um, you know, in America, historically, it's been kind of a, an ugly word when it comes to people who love good whiskey. But there are brands now who are starting to put that word back on but it doesn't mean the same thing that it meant for decades. It could mean that, but it doesn't. Um, you know, we're, we're starting to play with, you know, Jack Daniels just released the triple mash. You know, it's a blend of three different types of whiskey. It's their, it's, you know, it's blending their rye, it's blending their Tennessee whiskey and a single malt that they made. And they're calling that a blended whiskey. And it, and it is, and that's not a dirty word. It's just a blend of three different styles. So what else do you call it? Is it good? I've not had it yet. Um, I've read reviews of it um, for a $35 bottle. People seem pretty happy with it. Right. Yeah, good, good price point. All right. What about white bourbon? Okay, so um, white bourbon, white dog. Historically, they called it green whiskey. Um, now, technically, to be called whiskey, it has to be aged in oak. So while some, a lot of people call it white whiskey, white whiskey is the liquor that comes straight off the still it's clear. So they call it white. It's not been in a barrel yet. It's not been aged. Um, it's often can be kind of harsh. Um, is, it, you know, is, it, is it moonshine? Um, okay. Now uh, that's another technical thing there. If it is legally sold, it is not legally moonshine. Um, the legal definition of moonshine is whiskey that was produced without taxes paid on it. Moonshine by technical definition is illicit. If it, if, if it is sitting on a store shelf, taxes have been paid on it therefore it is not legally moonshine but moonshine does not have um a codified definition so if they want to call it moonshine the government does not stop them but if we're don't talking worry. <laughs> don't worry terry i'll edit this part out so the government doesn't know about your moonshine operation but if, if, there, talking, if there's a bourbon called illicit i will buy that but if we're talking historical <laughs> moonshine is whiskey that was distilled without taxes being paid on it um now i've i have had some moonshine that i would not disclose where it came from and it was aged on <laughs> perry <laughs> I, I'm, I'm from eastern kentucky so i have a lot of moonshine <laughs> I, had, I had a bottle i finished about a year ago of a it was a rye it was the moonshine rye and i people in a blind tasting and didn't tell them what it was and they're like this is fantastic i would pay for this and then I tell them that it was built in somebody's garage, you know, without, without a license. The, the only problem with all this tonight is that we don't live closer to you, Jacob. Because That's right. if we did, oh my God. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, if you want to get technical, you see Old Smokey 
moonshine, you know, all, all and that's the hot thing right now. People bottling this white whiskey. Yep. Um, you know, there's no legal thing saying they can't call it that, but technically it's not moonshine because if it's being sold at a store, they pay taxes on it. So it's not moonshine. We're going to come to Owensboro, all three of us. Yep. And we're going to have some moonshine. We uh, are. Can we have some moonlight barbecue and some moonshine since we're going to be in Owensboro? And, and get Rex Chapman to show up. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Eat at moonlight. So I'll, I'll go. Uh, I'll, I'll go with it. When we have out of town guests, that's when we eat at moonlight. Nicely done. Uh, I got one more question. Okay. Bottled and bond. Okay, so let's see. Bottled and bond. Um, bonding existed before 1897, but the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897 was largely pushed um, as a consumer protection act. Um, around that time, people were, um, they call it rectifying whiskey. They were taking white whiskey or bad bourbon, they were mixing it with some pretty awful stuff. Um, creosote, kerosene, dyes. Um, now, some, some of it was done better than others and, and tasted good, but a lot of it was, they called it imitation whiskey. They were trying to make young whiskey taste like well-aged whiskey without actually aging it now the people who were making legitimate whiskey second hold up on this you know you know we're making real whiskey here you're making imitation how can we how can we fix this so e.h taylor jr of bourbon fame pushed to get the bottled and bond act of 1897 passed and that was originally a seal of quality um see if I can recall all of this. It must be at least four years old. It must, be, um, there are two distilling seasons every year, two six month periods. Everything in the bottle must have come from one distilling season. It does not mean that the barrels came from the same month, but they came from the same six month period. Uh, has to be at least a hundred proof. So uh, it can't be above it, can't be below it. Yep. Um, and it has to be distilled, aged and bottled by the same company. So during during that time, that um, I think I got it. I think that was all of it. Um, you got so, it. You you nailed it. I think. Does the state have to be involved with this? Uh, no, no. Yeah, but I mean, but you oh, oh you, you have to tell where it came from. Okay. So you, you have to tell what distillery on the label, what distillery produced it. And at that time, um, you know, we talk about sourcing whiskey today. Sourcing has always been very common in the whiskey world. Um. So you had to tell which distillery produced it. You had to be transparent about that. So at a time when there was no transparency or people were selling garbage fake whiskey, bottled and bond um, was a seal of this is real, this is quality, it's worth buying. Um, now also it had to be it had to be aged in a warehouse that was supervised by the government. Basically meant that you weren't pulling any funny business that you were getting ta you were paying your taxes on your on your whiskey. So forever, the bottled and bond was a good quality, you know, seal. We know you're getting something quality. Now lately, though, the bottled and bond stopped really meaning much because we have lots of good bourbon out there that isn't bottled and bond. Um, so you know, the market for four year hundred proof, when we have twelve year stuff on the market isn't so important these days but why why the bottled and bond um after decades of irrelevance has become important again is for all these younger craft distilleries um, a lot of these craft distilleries they start putting whiskey out at one year two year three year and it's not real good 
But then they hit four years old and they put that bottled and bond label on it. And that's kind of a, a signal of, look, our whiskey is finally old enough to be worth buying. And, you know, it, it's old enough to be worth your money. But also a lot of these craft distilleries, they start out sourcing. So, you know, yeah. they're bottling whiskey they didn't make. So when you start seeing a bottled and bond from them, that's also a signal of this is our stuff. You know, we're not sourcing this. This is something we actually made. So the bottled and bond, largely after decades of being largely irrelevant, um, it's now a status symbol for these new craft distilleries. So while Heaven Hill owns a bunch of bottled and bond brands that I don't really care about, they don't mean much to me, a small new craft distillery, I'm going to pay attention to that when they put bottled and bond on it. Awesome. Guys, other questions? Oh, well, I'm sure I'll have plenty of questions uh, for Jacob on Twitter, but I don't want to keep him forever tonight because we get just the amount of knowledge you have, Jacob, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And so we hope to just excited to have you on the show again and again and again. Um, no. I'm glad to come back. No, hey. that was, that was very informative. Thanks for coming on our podcast. You're coming back again for the next round. Yep, you'll be back, Jacob. Thank you. All right. All right. Have a good can, night. Hey, hold on. Where yep. can they? Where can everybody find you on social media? All right, let's see here. So on Twitter, I'm at Owensboro Bourbonite, and I largely share information from books that I read. So if you want to know um, fun bourbon trivia, follow me on Twitter. And then on Instagram, I'm at under uh, Jacob underscore Kuiper. And I do a lot of bourbon photography on there. Um, yeah, so that's where you can find me. Outstanding. Thanks for coming on tonight. We appreciate that. Everybody follow Jacob on Twitter. He is outstanding. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jacob. Cheers, Jacob. Oh, that guy's money. Hey, hey, listen. Yeah. I love history and I love bourbon. And Jacob is a culmination of both those things. <laughs> Indeed, you know, he is. He is outstanding. Dude, I can't tell you. We're just lucky to have a guy like that that comes on our podcast and talks about bourbon, all the different nuances of bourbon. Bourbon could be a little bit intimidating. Like if you're hanging out with a bunch of people like, hey, what do you like to do? Oh, I like to drink bourbon. Well, tell me about the best bourbon. Dude, that's a long discussion. Mm. Oh, right? yeah. We're going to have a conversation <laughs> for days about that. Yeah. And you're going to get yeah. really drunk when you talk about it because yeah, as you, yeah, as you guys know, as you guys know, like I'm becoming a dad. And so like the four things that dads do when they drink bourbon, uh, they smoke meats, they like history and they go to Home Depot. <laughs> Attaboy. <laughs> if, 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 if I could give me. you a, if I give you a virtu virtual hug right now, I would totally fucking do that. So yeah, I, I love the I just love the history aspect that he brings. Um, it's very fascinating. You know, you you don't know your future until you know your past. So um, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead, Michael. And, and let, let me say, he's from Owensboro. Like, I, I I think Owensboro is one of the quintessential towns in Kentucky. It has such a rich history politically. From a sports perspective, geographically, it's an hour down the road from where I grew up in Madisonville. Owensboro is a great Kentucky town. I will tell you this. Basketball buzz will be in Owensboro this year. Some way or another. Oh, let's go. 
we're going to go there. We're going to enjoy bourbon with Jacob, and Rex Chapman is going to show up. I know he will. And we're going to eat at Moonlight. Rex, Rex does follow me on Twitter, so maybe I've talked to him before here and there a little. Maybe I'll, I'll see I'll see what's up. I'm planning on being in Kentucky next May, actually, so uh, that might be an option. You know what? He, I, I freaking love that. So that was awesome, informative. Let's talk about bourbon we're drinking tonight, because I think we should talk about that. Mm, okay. So who wants to go first? So I'll take it first. Uh, so tonight's not so much about uh, wh- who I'm drinking. It's all about what I'm drinking. So tonight I've actually prepared a, a whiskey sour. Um, and so a little bit of history on the sour. So sour is basically a cocktail that has usually lemon juice, some sort of citrus uh, and a sweetener. And so a sour is another cocktail that kind of originated, um, you know, back in the 1800s. Uh, similar to a grog, where uh, sailors needed something uh, that wasn't contaminated uh, that could help prevent scurvy. So that's kind of a little scurvy. bit of a. a, a I hate scurvy. A, a, I hate scurvy. I mean, can can we all agree scurvy sucks? Yeah, scurvy sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I tried to avoid it. <laughs> amongst other things, so uh, so. Um, that's my excuse for alcoholism, scurvy. <laughs> so amongst other things, uh, you know, there's some basic elements in a whiskey sour. Some things can be, can be tweaked. Um, I have my own process down, but again, uh, the main ingredients, uh, you can use bourbon, you can use rye. I prefer to use bourbon. Um, today I've used the remainder of the pipe dream that I have, um, which was an amazing bourbon. Um, and then you usually add in a part of uh, lemon juice, uh, a sweetener. Many people use simple syrup. I use Demerara syrup. And Demerara syrup is simply uh, the same concentration, one-to-one sugar to water, but instead of using baker sugar or white sugar, you can use turbinado cane sugar or um, uh, uh, Demerara sugar. So it, it really gives a more caramel flavor. Uh, so I add maybe an ounce of that. Um, and then here's the key ingredient, egg whites. Oh, so egg so whites fancy. doing a good, yeah, yeah. Egg whites so you know what? Shay, Shay is like the.